The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, and welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Joe Wenke, writer, social critic, and LGBTQ rights activist. He is the founder and publisher of TransUber, a publishing company with a focus on promoting LGBTQ rights, free thought, and equality for all people. His new book is The Human Agenda, Conversations About Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having you. Thanks for being here again. You've been on the yes, show a couple times. Yes, I think times. this is yeah. the third time. Thank, thank you so much, Catherine. It's, it's well, always it's a lot of fun. Well, it's good to have you, and as we got to chat a little bit before the show. Uh, I read your book. I think it's one of your best books, actually. I love it because uh, you interview authors, uh, people from a very diverse community, and it's all about their personal experiences and having the conversations about sexual orientation and gender identity. So, um, you know, for me, the timing is great. I've had two people probably in the last couple weeks ask me exactly what, and this is very innocently said, I guess, and these are people who are well-educated, people who you would expect to know what does transgendered mean, who are transgendered people, but they've asked, I don't know, they think I'm a social worker, I have the answer, but you're going to tell us the answer. Um, what is, give us a, give me a, what is the definition of a transgendered person? Sure. Well, I think the, the basis of the confusion is that people tend to think of biological gender, and they don't really understand what is meant by gender identity. So biological gender is the gender or sex that you're assigned at birth, basically because of your anatomy. I mean, it's more complicated than that to determine if you're biologically male or female. I mean, there is your entire sexual reproductive system, chromosomes, hormones, and neurology. But basically, the doctor takes a look at you and said, you know, that's a boy, that's a girl. Gender identity is how we experience our gender and how we communicate or present it. And as Aiden Key says in my book, and he's a transgender man who works with very young transgender children and their families, basically, uh, if you are not aligned in your experience of your gender identity with your biological gender, then you are transgender. Uh, most people are aligned or not. It's simply a variance. And I think that's the message of the book. And uh, transgender people discover their gender identities at different ages, some very young. Um, in fact, Aiden has worked with children who begin to identify as transgender as soon as they can speak. And you can imagine the problem. A tiny little kid uh, who happens to have a penis saying, I'm a girl, is going to be, you know, chuckle that, oh, you're confused. 
and is told. Well, what about this, Joe? Though you know, as I've raised three kids, and I, you know, kids when especially as they're sort as they're evolving, preschool, two, three, four years old, little boys like to play with girls' toys, or little girls like to play with boys' toys. So let's say, how would one maybe identify their their child as perhaps being transgendered, or so that they could be supportive and helpful during the process? Well, I think it's really important to have guidance early on, and Aiden talks about this. So does uh, Kristen Russo, who is the co-founder, along with Daniel Owens Reed of of the humorously titled website everyoneisgay.com, it's really a journey for the parents as well. You know, everybody has certain expectations about their children and may be uh, expecting their genders to remain the same as they were identified at birth. And you really have to be in touch with your child on this issue as on any other issue. Really, it's just one uh, one of the things that you have to communicate with your child on as they grow. It could be that a child is simply interested in playing with girls, you know, if he's identified as a boy and girls' toys, or it could be something else. And parents need to take very seriously all aspects of the development of their children and not impose certain expectations on them. At the same time, uh, it's undeniable that parents go through a sense of loss Uh, and even grief when a child identifies as transgender. They think that they've lost the child that they had, even though the child is still there. So it's challenging, it's complicated, but it's part of the human experience. Okay, it is challenging and complicated, also given, I think, our cultural attitudes and ignorance, and I think probably ignorance is one of the, not necessarily that people... I think that obviously this discrimination and some of the statistics uh, that involve transgendered women, for instance, which are horrific, um, disturbing. And I just want to read the statistic because homicide rates for transgender women account for 45% of all hate murders. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also gay and lesbian youth are four times more likely than their peers to attempt suicide. So a, a book like yours is really important to inform people, and not just with these statistics, but also with these stories, and each one of these people, each one of these experts actually have a story to tell, both personally and professionally. So, Well, there's um, also confusion between gender identity and sexual orientation and sexuality, and so right, this yeah, is a very complicated issue, and you did have previously on your show Giselle Alicia, who's yes. a supermodel and was... Uh, a participant in this book, and she's been involved in my other books as the model on the covers, or she took the uh, photograph of the novel I just published for the uh, cover called The Talk Show. Now, Giselle and also Carmen Carrera, they're very beautiful women. Does that mean that they're not harassed? No, it does not. And Giselle, in my conversation with her, talks about the fact that when she goes back to visit her mother in her old neighborhood in Harlem, she is sometimes subject to harassment, even though, you, you know, their passing, so-called, is not an issue. Uh, people know that she grew up first as a boy. They've told their children that, and she can be harassed at any time. And, in fact, her mother lives just a couple of blocks away from where Islam Nettles was killed, uh, which is a, uh, a case that still has not been solved. She was walking down the street, 148th and Frederick Douglass Avenue, 
right in front of a police station, was approached by a group of men, uh, one of whom was attracted to her. It isn't clear what happened after that, but she ended up dead. And so, uh, yes, you know, as Janet Mock, um, who's now on MSNBC and is a beautiful transgender woman, says, passing is critical to survival. In other words, if you're a transgender woman or a man, you want to look like what other people think a woman or a man should look like. On the other hand, it's no guarantee. And in fact, very beautiful transgender women, if they're out you know, at a cafe or a bar, and uh, they're approached by men uh, who are straight and may not be entirely comfortable with their sexuality, are put in a very uncomfortable position of having to reveal something very personal about themselves uh, immediately, uh, or be concerned uh, that they could be subjected to uh, anger and abuse and harassment once it's discovered that they're transgender. And, Joe, one of the things I kind of wanted to clarify, because you one can be, let's say, a transgendered woman and still have a penis, but you are a trans of woman. Yeah, there has nothing or you to can do be a with, trans woman um, with a vagina or vice versa, and, and the same with men. I think that does get confusing to people. Well, your identity doesn't have to do with your anatomy. In fact, and, that was and a I question think we have to that... Clarify. Uh, yes, yes. Yes, that uh, Katie Couric asked uh, Carmen Carrera, and she was on Katie's show with Laverne Cox. And I had a conversation, and it's in the book, with Carmen about this. Yes. And it actually appears from the interview that this was almost the sole preoccupation that Katie had. It turns out there was a half-hour interview, and they, and they showed about three minutes, but it was all focused on uh, Carmen's and Laverne's genitals, right? And I've known many, many transgender women, uh, dozens and dozens of transgender women, professionally, personally, um, acquaintances, and very few have had uh, gender reassignment surgery. I would say more than 90% have not. So how does no. that work in terms of a relationship? Because I have a, not a close friend, but an acquaintance, um, actually, to uh, professionally, uh, lesbian friends. And, mm-hmm. But one of, and, and they are married, and they were wife and wife, but now um, one of the women has, has um, really has had uh, hormone therapy, and I'm, I'm not sure, exactly sure whether or not she's had, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, what's the term? Gender reassignment surgery. Yeah, gender reassignment, exactly. But then, so how does that change the relationship? I'm always interested in relationships. Like, first, you're, yeah. you're, you're a lesbian, you're married to another woman, you're attracted to another woman, and suddenly your partner, you know, trans, uh, becomes a man, and then what is that, how does that affect you, I guess, the other partner in the relationship. Well, sometimes people stay uh, together, Catherine, and sometimes yes. they don't. And uh, what, I think what's good is that there are lots of people who are, are telling their personal uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, this evening, I'm actually uh, going to be at the Mark Twain House in Hartford uh, with a transgender woman poet, Joy Layden. And, she was uh, on be- my show. Yeah, so, yeah, so she's going to be I there. Know that, yes, she's a professor at Yeshiva University. Yes, at Yeshiva, and also uh-huh. a transgender man who's a playwright, Toby Davis, who's written a kind of trans version of the vagina monologue. So we're all going to be at the Mark Twain house. Oh, I wish you know, I could be there. <laughs> yeah, so it should be a fun night. It sounds now, great, yeah. Yes. Now, I know from just briefly dipping in uh, to Joy's uh, memoir that she was married, had children, 
and uh, they part it. I know a lot of other people do stay together. Now, and I think another important point to make is that, you know, there are lots of people who are attracted to transgender people. For example, my primary attraction is toward transgender women. I didn't know that. And why that. is that? I'm curious. Okay, so, you know, you haven't, did you, were you always attracted to transgender women? I have been since I, I discovered that there were transgender women. There were no, uh, when I grew up uh, in South Philadelphia and outside of Philadelphia, not only did I not meet transgender women, I didn't meet black people, I didn't meet Jewish people, I didn't meet Muslim people. Uh, it was all white, even though it was a working class neighborhood. So I didn't know what I didn't know <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> And um, when I first came to live in the New York City area, and this is now over 30 years ago, I discovered that there were transgender women, and I immediately discovered that I was attracted to them. I'm, I'm actually attracted to a, you know, a feminine uh, appearance, uh, but a woman who has a penis. That's, uh, so that's another category. <laughs> Yes, it is. And now here's another interesting point. What's yeah. the word to describe that sexual orientation? And I had this conversation with Aiden Key, and he made the point. Yeah. It's kind of obvious. Well, if you can be heterosexual or homosexual, wouldn't that make you transsexual? Oh, gee, that word's already been taken and applied in another way. And my point is that there is no word to describe that attraction, um, and that's because we don't even acknowledge many of us that transgender people exist. Now, what is, what is your sexual orientation if you're a woman and you're attracted to a transgender man. <clears throat> and that's fairly common. And what about intersex people? Uh, I have an intersex person in the book, Hita Valoria, who earlier on in life identified as female, then as male, and then decided, no, I, I was born intersex. I did not have an operation you know, changing my sexual organs for no reason whatsoever since they work just fine. And my gender and gender identity uh, should be defined as intersex. So I guess we're just adding as we become, we're evolving, are we? And the, yeah. The, I, we're having this well, conversation. The human agenda is evolving. And we're, as we're being able to express ourselves and being able to literally get out there, there are all these, it, I guess it's, Sexuality is on a continuum, and I think that's difficult and maybe why we have a lot of these hate crimes and and, uh, people really are ignorant and we like to see things in black and white. You know, you talk about buying. Yeah, and so it's difficult for us to comprehend culturally that, hey, there's a whole continuum of sexual orientation, behavior, identity. Um, Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, and Rabbi Amy Bernstein makes this point that we're not just polarized when it comes to issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's on absolutely everything right now. And that's really why I did the book the way I did. I'm, you know, just like many people, I'm becoming increasingly concerned that on just about every issue, our culture and our country is, is uh, you know, we're all polarized. And uh, oftentimes we don't have real conversations. We have dueling talking points, and you can't get people, you know, if you're watching uh, the political talk shows, to even answer a question. And I thought to myself, well, I'd like to do a book that where we try to find common ground. Where would we find that? It would have to be in our shared humanity. How do we do that? And as you know from my other books, I like to be outrageous and funny and satirical, but I was thinking... Well, you know, humor can defuse 
difficult topics, or it can be the fuse, depending upon you know who the joke is aimed at. And I love debate, but a lot of times you're just really reinforcing uh, agreement with people who already agree with you. So I was thinking, I want to do interviews. I want to really have conversations where we tell stories about ourselves. And isn't it storytelling that is at the foundation of communication? And maybe that's how we can create opportunities for understanding and empathy where perhaps formerly uh, there were no opportunities. So that's yeah, well, the idea. As you say, if you're debating with one another, there, there really aren't opportun- opportunities for that. And your stories were revealing. So tell you know, for you, because was there any, I don't want to say surprises, but in anybody's stories, things that you learned that were new to you? Uh, yeah, I, I learned so much, really. And it's really in the way that you get to learn about people. You know, it's not so much um, I came to a conclusion on an issue that I didn't have before. It was really immersing myself in other people's lives and passing over to their point of view. But there were surprising things I, I didn't know until I talked to Aiden Key. And actually, he and I and Giselle were going to be at the Seattle Town Hall next month, um, sort of bringing the human agenda to life, sort of a live version of it. And he's, he's uh, located out there, and as I said, he works with very young children. I didn't know that there were kids, you know, two, three years old who are identifying as trans. And if they are supported from the beginning, he said, they thrive. So, uh, you know, there's another very controversial topic, that's the whole pathologization, as I would put it, of transgender people. And it used to be that you were said to have a gender identity disorder, and now the diagnosis is this kinder, gentler dysphoria, which means you're uncomfortable with your body. But guess what? A lot of the kids that he works with and their families, they don't experience that. Yeah, they're and, not you know, uncomfortable, of course, what but we the... label them as uncomfortable, and once we do that, yes. and we, yeah, then, right. uh, you know, then, then they do become uncomfortable. It becomes difficult for them. Yeah, so, um, well, Aiden Key, though, he's, I just want to, his title is Founder of Gender Education and Support Services. That's right. So he yeah. uh, provides support services to transgender kids and their families. He hosts conferences. He speaks uh, nationally, and you know, maybe you, you should consider having him on your show. He's working with very young children. Yeah, I think I would like him to be on the show because I think it, it does. It starts with the children, but and the parents. So I was glad to see that you, you know, that you yes. really did cover this topic because parents need support. And I think I don't know that it was he, Aiden, or one of the other people that you interviewed, but they really pointed out that you know sometimes parents have been looked at as the bad people, the ones who are right. trying to make their kids conform. When that's not really the case, sometimes they're just concerned that their child is going to be in danger. It used to be of that, course. you know, with gay and lesbian kids, and, um, and the same with transgendered. So they need a lot of support. They need to know where to go. Um, and I think you really do have to start with the parents as well. Right. Well, Kristen Russo, who I mentioned before, and again, uh, she, along with uh, Daniel Owens-Reed, it's now an organization, not just a website, called Everyone is Gay. And they've launched, to your point, the Parents Project. And they have a new book out, which I recently reviewed for Book Trip, called This is a Book for Gay Parents. And, you know, they were basically saying, uh, Kristen was saying, when a child comes out as gay or, or lesbian or queer, if that's the word that they use, and increasingly young people are using that word to describe their sexual orientation, the parents go through a coming up process as well. And there are all sorts of questions that they ask, you know, like, is, is this my fault? Is this a choice? Is this a phase? How do I tell other people? Uh, and, of course, to your point, too, they worry about the safety of their children. 
So everybody goes through this uh, together. And, uh, you know, you asked me what, what changed in my thinking, and this is a little bit odd and hard to communicate. At the end of talking about coming out and all of these experiences, I found myself thinking, why do we have this phenomenon called coming out in the first place? Now, first of all, straight people don't come out, right? If you're identifying as a boy, you don't go over to your parents one day and say, hey, mom and dad, just so you know, I like girls. It doesn't happen. But we, I, I think we as human beings feel that we want the people who love us to know who we really are. So you feel compelled to share this about yourself. Let's say that you're gay or that you're transgender, and you're afraid that you're jeopardizing your entire relationship. And then once I realized that, and this is something that not only Kristen talked about, but Ash Beckham, who's a, a lesbian activist, that you know everybody in a sense comes out in other ways to other people at, at different times. And you feel that if you share something very personal and perhaps traumatic with a person who loves you, you could be jeopardizing that relationship. But as I mentioned, you, you may feel compelled anyway. Absolutely. That point you made in the book, and I, and I, 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 as most people, I'm sure you could identify with it. And I, just a personal example, you know, in my generation, baby boomer girls were supposed to be virgins when they got married, and of course, I lost my virginity way before I got married, but afraid to tell my mother, and certainly afraid to tell my father. So, and when I finally did tell my mother, it was the same. You know, it was sort of the same thing. I mean, I want them to love me and accept me, but this was a, a taboo, something that I had done. So. So it's sort of, isn't that what you're talking about? That's exactly it. So uh, what I'm hoping in the book is that I can sort of build bridges so people could say, well, wait a second. I can relate to coming out even though I'm not gay because I had this thing that I thought was a terrible secret that I had to tell my mother or father or, you know, my boyfriend or, or girlfriend. I mean, I mean, suppose horribly uh, you're a, a young woman who was raped. And let's say that that fact is, is uh, impacting seriously your ability to relate to a man or a woman. And it's damaging your relationship, but you don't want to reveal that. Well, that's a coming out as well. So we've all had these kinds of experiences. It could really be about just, a, you know, about anything. Uh, you know, I mentioned in our previous conversation that I have a different point of view on religion from the rest of my family. And that's been a huge issue, and especially when I was much younger, and also politically. So there are so many things that can potentially divide us and that are just really difficult to talk about because of the emotion. Yeah, and that's all part of the human agenda, as you point out in these interviews in the book. But another thing, Joe, I think that's important is you point out that um, coming, let's say you cut one comes out to their parents, but it's not, that's not the end of it. Because then, the, yes, you come out to your parents, and your parents are supportive, and they love you, and they want to do whatever they can to uh, to support you, but then... There's the school, and when you go to school, and, and, you know, maybe you shouldn't have to come out, but you do come out, and if you're transgender, I think it's a big political issue now about bathrooms in schools and who can yeah. use them. and who. I mean, so it does get translated into our everyday life, whether we're, you know, gay or straight or transgendered. Um, the issues become politicized. Um, I think some of these women's colleges, the Smith College, for instance, is, is in the um, – throes of deciding what they're going to do about, I guess, accepting trans women into the, being accepted into the school. Um, and that's yes. happening, yeah. 
Well, and, and that raises the issue of whether or not we should have single-sex institutions, period. And uh, I've been reading the articles about that. And some uh, previously all-women's schools are admitting transgender women, and others are not. So it's kind of interesting how you know, basically something that's not new but that people are just learning about disrupts so many of the things that we just assumed as being true. And, you know, I think the other reason why I, I feel that this book was critical to come out at this time is that while it appears that we're making progress with, for example, an issue like marriage equality, what does that really represent? Well, to me, it represents tolerance, which is extremely important, but it's just a first step. And uh, recently, for example, Frank Bruni, who's a, an op-ed a columnist for New York Times, happens to be gay, was saying that, okay, we've achieved tolerance with respect to marriage equality, and perhaps it will become the law across the country. But he pointed out that GLAD, which is a uh, gay, lesbian, and now transgender activist organization, had recently commissioned a poll in which significant percentages of people, ranging anywhere from 30 to 45 percent, would say things like, well, you know, I support same-sex marriage, but I'd be uncomfortable if my son or daughter attended one. And I would be uncomfortable if I found out that my elementary school child was taught by a gay teacher or that the pediatrician was gay. And that's not even addressing the trans issue. And then we still have, I think, people who are instantaneously, you know, almost viscerally upset if they see two men walking down the street holding hands. So we've reached tolerance, but not yet acceptance, which to me is also implicitly kind of condescending, like, well, I accept you for who you are. Ultimately, well, it's what kind we're of like, who are you to accept me? We're equal. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that's beyond tolerance, and then beyond that is equality, and then even celebration of who we are as human beings, celebrating our differences. That's really what makes us great. Yeah. But don't you think, Joe, that's the it. human agenda, the human condition, whether we're, I mean, Jews had this problem, I'm a Jewish, but back in the 50s and early 60s and blacks and, you know, all of this kind of, it takes society time to evolve and obviously reading books like yours and, and uh, becoming informed and stuff. I mean, it, it doesn't happen all at once, like you're saying, tolerance is first, but then we have to keep on going. It's a very long road. Yeah, it is. We can't get complacent. No, we can't. And I was on a show recently in which the host, who said that he happened to be gay, was wondering why he even bought it with a book. And, you know, I should have come out with this 30 years ago, and aren't all these issues solved? And, you know, I almost fell on the floor when he said that. Because <laughs> well, if it, you came out with a book 30 years ago, no one would have bought it. You have, that, exactly. it have to be in the right context, right? And the right uh, cultural, political, the right timing is everything. It, it does. And, you know, the, and the title is really an ironic commentary on the old hate speech phrase, the homosexual agenda, which you still hear every two minutes from the religious right. And that was coined back in the early 90s to say that there's this vast conspiracy of uh, gay people, or as they would say, disparagingly homosexuals, who are attempting to undermine the values of the, of the country. And, of course, human beings just aren't that organized. There's no such conspiracy. People are just living their lives. That's it. That's all they're doing. I think the media has been a, a real positive. I'll ask you the question. Um, do you think the media has really, especially in the past maybe 10 or 15 years, has done a pretty good job of, I think, getting the word out and, and informing people and, and uh, helping people to be more comfortable and informed with, um, with the human agenda and having, the, and having the conversations about sexual orientation and gender identity? 
It is, but I think I still think there's that divide. It's still the MSNBC Fox divide, uh, pretty much. But you're right. There are a lot more conversations, shows like yours. There are discussions taking place all the time. And so we've made progress on some of these issues, particularly with respect, as I said, to tolerance and marriage equality. But people are still very uncomfortable with gay people. Uh, you know, would colleagues at work be comfortable if a woman had her, uh, her spouse's picture on her desk and it was another woman? I mean, there are a lot of people who aren't still. And it's very complicated to get at why people feel this way. It, it's going way back to how you sort of formed your point of view, you know, nature, nurture, going back to when you were a kid and how you were raised. It's exactly, hard to, but it, I think there are still people who are uncomfortable with having a black president and who will be very oh. uncomfortable if we have a woman as president. Well, that is for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, earlier in my life I was married to a black woman. I have a daughter. Uh, my ex, well, we got divorced and my that woman subsequently passed away. Uh, my daughter's living with us. I remember when I was going out with her, walking through a store, pushing a shopping cart, walking next to her, I'm white, she's black, and a kid about 10 years old took one look of us, at us and with a stunned look on his face said, what the hell is that? This was in New York State. Mm. Uh, so there's this instantaneous rejection of difference uh, that evidences itself in so many ways. Ignorance and intolerance. Well, that's what that's what we're always, I think, fighting against. Um, we have to say goodbye. My next guest is here. As always, okay. I love talking to you, <laughs> and I'm going to oh, have you back on the show. <laughs> and I really do want to push the book because it really is. A, it's a really good book. Besides, just you know, it has information, but it also it does everyone. These all these individuals that you've chosen, they tell really good stories. So it really yeah. does make for a good read. The Human Agenda: Conversations about Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Joe Wenke, thanks for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yeah, Have a we'll great talk day. to you soon again. Thank you. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Rachel Kadanis. Rachel is the author of Grief in the Workplace, A Comprehensive Guide to Being Prepared. Uh, Rachel, she's not only an author, but she's a speaker and a coach uh, who provides encouragement to those who are suffering a loss or setback, overcoming her own adversity following the sudden death of her husband many years ago, leaving her with a two-year-old daughter and her experience in the management of large corporations led her to develop and publish resources about how to support grief and loss in the work place, hence her book, Grief in the Workplace, A Comprehensive Guide to Being Prepared. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Nice to have you on again. You've been on the show before, and it's a a pleasure to have you back. Well, thanks, and I'm glad. Good morning to all you and the listeners. Yes. So, Grief in the Workplace, I know sometimes listeners will say, well, what is grief in the workplace? You know, you have your family problems, your family issues, whatever they may happen to be, and they may be catastrophic. Someone close to you and your family dies, but then you go to work and you're supposed to, I'm going to use the expression, you know, man up. This has nothing to do with your work. Home is home and work is work, but that's not really true. And I do believe there's a trend actually changing from that attitude, although that's my goal in life is to change that attitude, so I appreciate you pointing it out. Um, Unfortunately, there has been over the years a line between what is professional and what is personal. I do think in our new touch-me-feel-me world that we're moving into, maybe some of it is having smartphones and we connect in our home with our work or, you know, just whatever it is. The trend is more towards that. However, I do think, as you said, there is a line in the sand um, that does separate the two. But maybe go over a little bit. I mean, I just mentioned it briefly in the introduction, but your personal experience, your husband died of a heart attack when he was 32 years old. So here you are, a young woman with a two-year-old child and really not expecting this at all. And um, so what was your, you know, briefly, what happened to you? Because obviously it wasn't a good experience in terms of what happened to you in your workplace uh, initially. Well, it was, I mean, it is, but it isn't. You know, when you're going through it, you think it's awful because you think nobody cares because of all the dynamics. But then when you out here presenting it all the time, you think, okay, there were some things that they did perfect and there's some things that, that could have changed. But what I learned over the years, what part of it was not so perfect was really that nobody knows how to handle you. So what I go after in my grief in the workplace is more of how to, how to train coworkers, managers, and HR of how to handle this employee when they return to work, but also when there's a death in the workplace of how to handle that emotions as well. But going specifically back to returning to work, what I learned in my journey and helping other people is no matter how you look at it, the situation is awful, and yet the company has business as usual. So what are some ways that there could be compromise with the two challenges? Well, you don't you? It has to be work for for the employee as well as the company. Doesn't I mean? And obviously, you do this in your guide. 
But the company, Human Resources, has to see how this is going to be a win-win situation for work, too. You want workers who are going to uh, be able to adjust when coming, whether someone's died in the workplace or someone's died in their family situation, that they'll be better workers and be able to be able to be more productive if they go through the grief process in a healthy way. I agree absolutely that they do have to do it, and that's encouragement. And, you know, some companies have EAPs, and, all, of course, there's always a love-hate with that as well. But, however, I just, you know, what companies ask me, the number one question that I get, two questions that I get from companies when I present is, one, what is the timeline? How long is it going to be? What's it going to do to me? And the second one is, why should I embrace it? And while it sounds harsh, while you and I are out of context talking about this, is why should I embrace it? And there's 10, 20, 40, 50 reasons why you should embrace it. And the most important is they were a good employee before this happened, and they will be a good employee again. Just hang out. They're still loyal to you. They'll still work with you. Now, of course, if there was behavior before, then that's a whole different arena. But at the end of the day, it will cost a company more money to hire somebody new, train them, do all the process of the hiring that it would be to just work with this employee. So let's get let's talk about examples. Like we're talking about grief in the workplace. You've got a whole comprehensive guide to being prepared. How do we prepare ourselves? How does the company prepare themselves? What specifically should one do? In and in give us you know specific examples. Okay, so there's different pieces of it. As I said earlier, one is that if an employee dies versus if an employee returns to work, and I call it after a significant loss. The reason why I call it that is because we do have all types of setbacks in our lives that aren't just death. So when I say a significant loss, I'm referring to someone that had passed away very young. I'm referring to the whole notion of suicide, homicide, and, you know, our neighborhood catastrophes that seem to be happening more than we want to admit. So those, to me, are significant losses. Those are the ones that you weren't expecting, The you know, an early diagnosis of an illness. So that piece of it is... How does that affect the workplace, and how do you prepare for that? If there was a perfect world, I'd love to train all corporations on grief and loss so you understand it, and then when an instance of a death happens, you know exactly what to do. But we all know that that doesn't happen because we're more in a re- reactive mode than we are in a let's, let's plan in advance. So how do you handle that, and what do you do? One, I think there should be policies and procedures in place, and I call them procedures um, because they're guidelines. That, you know, hardcore policy of a bereavement leave is just doesn't work in the 21st century. So have policies in place, whether it's personal time off, whether it's ideas of how people share vacation time, whatever it is, to have some procedures in, in place to help the grieving individual. But okay, example, you're talking about, you're, I'm going to interrupt you because you're talking about loss and it doesn't, let's say, necessarily have to be, uh, death. It could be, uh, and this is unfortunately, I know many pe- women who have been in this position, you're diagnosed with breast cancer. You have to have a mastectomy. Um, grief, loss, your whole world is, is changed, including your work life. So is, that would be an example. So I bucket that into what I call anticipatory loss, and sorry to listeners that, that it's not necessarily that you're going to die, but that's more of an illness. Can I call it that in the workplace? Because it's an illness of you don't know what, what's going to happen. You don't know if they're going to come back. You don't know what the treatments are going to do. So in some cases, I actually think that might be a little bit harder than an actual death because you don't know. And people are diagnosed for some type of a disease, and they can live for six months, and they can live for 10 years. And right or wrong, we stay in our jobs because we find a way to stay in our jobs because we need the health benefits. 
So how do you handle that and what do you do? There are similar procedures and policies that I, that I try to share with the companies is, you know, we've got Family um, Medical Leave Act. We've got personal time off, vacation time. There's different arenas of, of availability that can be used to accommodate this employee. But the other side of the fence is how do you keep business as usual? Because especially in a smaller company, they may not be able to afford to leave that position empty for six months, three months while this person's figuring it out. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. It's Yeah, it's a much more uh, ambivalent kind of situation, as you say. I mean, because you, you, you don't really know what's going to happen, and business has to go on, as you say, in a small company. I mean, you can't you, – you, it's it's very different, I think, as you, than in a larger company um, um, where you have access to more resources. Um, so, Correct. okay, yeah. So, you know, all of it is hard. I'm not going to deny it. And all of it is what happens is we cross the line of professional and personal because you think to yourself, if it happened to them, it could happen to me. And the whole anticipatory and the whole illness, I mean, we are, what happened to us as a society in 2008, 2009, financially, we have, our workforce is much older than it has been in the past. And not saying that age, as I was widowed at 31, not saying that age dictates when somebody dies, but, you know, numbers talk. Yeah. Actually, it does dictate. I think there's like 20% or 23% of the population, which I was surprised. I thought it would be more, are are uh, are baby boomers. But I think that's all. Well, they, I know the teens now, you know, are, the next round of them are, that's a pretty big population as well. All right. So take us, you know, through some more examples of like how to be prepared or what do we do when we're not prepared and what are the consequences of that for business if you're not prepared for for the loss? Well, what I generally see when something happens, because like I said, the perfect world is you go in and you train in advance and then they just put this, this guide on the shelf and it sits there forever. But in reality, that's not what happens. In reality, most of the time you get the phone call when there's a tragic event happens and they beg you to come in or beg you to give you ideas or you know, all of a sudden everybody's buying the book on Amazon.com so they, you know, so they can have it the next day. But for me, I think the whole way of handling the situation is I have a checklist inside the guide of all different types of activities that need to be done. And for some people, they might think reading it is it's common sense. However, it's amazing what falls through the cracks when, when something happens and you're running on emotions rather than on logic, just as simple as who is attends the funeral. Because to keep business as usual, somebody has to be at the shop no matter how big the company is. And then there's some companies that say, no, we don't attend funerals. But then there's people that say, but wait, they were my really dear friend. So I start at the very top of how do you notify people of the situation? Because unfortunately, text messaging, social media moves faster than we can blink our eyes. But I still think you need to follow up for that interaction of one-on-one to answer the specific questions. So... To answer your real question is, what do you do when something happens? There, I, the book has a checklist in it of everything from, again, how do you notify the people, who goes to the funeral. You know, people bring in a counselor, and we hear this on the news all the time. They bring in a counselor for the first 24 hours. We're in shock. You need to, someone needs to come back after that when, when we have the ability to articulate what we're looking for and the questions we are asking. And also, doesn't I mean? I think I'm thinking of different uh, examples. If you have a parent who loses a child, which is horrific, 
uh, where is, is different than if you have an, uh, an employee whose, you know, 95-year-old grandmother dies, uh, that's a different situation. And, and, and the grieving process can be different or is different usually. So how do you, I mean, so you, you may have different, what, reactions in place in the workplace in terms of that employee? Is it different or do you treat the situation differently? Well, you know, it, for me, from a logical perspective, because yeah. actually by profession in my corporate America, I was information technology and telecommunications. And so from my logical piece, I can say to you, Catherine, that you know what, that they are different losses. But from an emotional perspective, we don't know how people react and, and who are we to judge how somebody reacts to one and the versus the other. For me, personally, is that I think a sudden loss, a untimely death, is much more significant than one of a, a natural progression that you expect to happen. But that can't control how somebody reacts to that loss. But specifically, when I talk about grief and loss in the workplace, I really talk about the sudden and more significant losses because they're the ones that are so shocking to not only the person that's grieving but the entire work group. So, for example, when my husband died, things that I never thought of, and it took years and years of me working in this field to understand what happened, I had all these people that worked for me in a very technical field. And for them, I didn't realize the second my husband died that they lost their lifeline to their career because I was the first person, to, I'm the person that represents them, and all of a sudden they now went from this really strong manager to this what perceived to be a very weak manager. How are they going to take care of me? How are they going to take care of the projects that are going to make me shine? How am I going to climb the corporate ladder when I don't have someone promoting me? So their jobs were at stake, too, and they saw themselves as vulnerable within the company because of what happened to you. Exactly. So, so much happens that it is really, even though we can, we have, as I call it, a comprehensive guide that gives you ideas of how to work with each situation. I mean, it's, it's, every situation is still going to be different because we have no idea, no matter how hard we want to pretend we do, we have no idea what happens in, in someone's private house. You know, we don't ha know what happens behind their front door. And Catherine, you could lose somebody close and I could lose somebody close and we could be two different people in the workplace. Well, give us. A, what do you mean by that? Give us an example. Okay, so we both uh, lose our husbands. Let's say the same scenario that, that happened to you. I mean, something totally unexpected. You do not expect your healthy husband to 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 drop dead of a heart attack at age thirty-two, right? I mean, that's not expected. It happens to right. me. It happens to you. What would be the two different reactions in the workplace? In, in your experience? Okay, so. As we compare two people that are talking on the radio. But, yeah. you know, you, I could walk in, I could walk in and say, I am just such a pedal to the metal. I'm going to put my face down. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to put all my work in, involved. I'm not going to talk to any of my coworkers. I'm going to, this is just how I'm going to attack it. Well, you might say, you know, that you're so close to your, the people and people come in and talk to you. And then, you know, you're a little bit more emotional and you might be, be less productive. Me, on the other hand, my, uh, another example for me is I might come back and say, okay, I, you know what, this career means nothing to me anymore, but I need my health insurance and I need to, um, I need to just stay here till I can figure out my life. So, you know, there's just different ways that we can emotionally walk into the situation. I might have a support around me, which I didn't, but I might have that support around me that's helping me financially, that's helping me with my child 
that's helping me, you know, do everything that I can maintain somewhat of normalcy. You may have no support staff around you. So what we do is we walk in as two different people, although we both experience a similar loss. Yeah. We walk in as two different people experiencing a similar loss, but the workplace situation is the same, and the work that has to be accomplished in a certain way remains the same, right? So how do we adjust, or how does the company help us to adjust to that situation? Because I'm thinking, you know, in the second example, you get, or say of, of if it were I, and I lost my husband uh, suddenly, and then I... And I've experienced this in certain workplaces where then the employee will go in and, you know, talking about their husband all the time, uh, having people come into their office, using them as support, uh, you know, emotional support, which can be kind of detrimental to the workplace because you're not doing your work. The opposite of, like, the example you gave of just, like, pouring yourself into your work. Uh, So that has to – I mean, I'm assuming that that – in your book, this is what you help companies wrestle with or uh, strategize with. And in my presentations as well, and what's interesting is you just pinned it because people excuse me, always ask me, how, what do you do? I mean, obviously you have to give them a little bit of a long leash for just, a, you know, for whatever the appropriate time is. But there's a point where there's a place for this and there's a, you know, there's not a place for it. And it's a difficult fine line. Um, I try to, uh, I suggest, strongly suggest, that the immediate manager tries not to be the frontline person when there is a problem like that, um, you know, when there's a challenging situation, because that just creates even more, it just creates challenges amongst the coworkers. But in my training, what I emphasize with the coworkers is to understand what grief and loss is. And in this case is where some of the coworkers shouldn't, I hate to use that word should or shouldn't, but possibly not encourage the workplace to have those types of conversations. Let's go to lunch. Let's go for a walk. Let's have, let's have a drink after work. Let me stop by your house if you're my dear friend. So there have to be boundaries is what you're saying. There are boundaries Absolutely. within the workplace. You may have three or four coworkers who you're close to and friends with, but don't have those conversations at work. Have them after work, as you at lunch, dinner, in your own home, if that's what you do. Um, right, and my carefulness of, of where I, it's kind of where it's a fine line because I do my other side of the house, you know, my whole living with loss one day at a time book and all that is working with the grievers is you don't want to stifle a griever because the more a griever speaks, the more the griever will actually hear themselves. But on the other hand, there is a time and place for it. And so there's a fun, that, and I go back and with, my, with my companies that I work with and I say, the key to this is really training, as I've said a couple of times, is the coworkers, managers, and HR of what to expect so they can be the front line to deal with it. But if they don't know what to expect and what to do, how would they know how, when it's time to, okay, this is inappropriate, or let's channel this somewhere else? Right, so you need some leadership. I guess in the same yeah. way, or you need guidelines, you need leadership in this arena, in the same way that you do when you have employees who have addiction problems, alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever, right? So it's a similar kind of thing. You have to have a plan in place. What's the worst Correct. mistake that you see that companies do or that you've seen companies do in terms of handling grief in the workplace? I'm trying to fix the person that is grieving. Um, and, and not letting it take the appropriate timeline, telling them what's right for them and what they should and shouldn't be doing. And, and 
that's from a personal perspective, meaning that's from somebody that's grieving, is that they're trying to come in, they're trying to balance their life, yet people are telling them, well, they should be doing this, or this is, you know, just in, in your personal life as well. People try to fix the griever. I think that's one thing. The biggest thing, um, and I love to name my presentation this, is this is addressing the elephant in the room. The biggest mistake companies make is pretend that it didn't happen. It being that the per- what didn't happen? It didn't happen. The person is not grieving. Someone didn't die. Yes. Like they don't address it at all. Just saying, oh, you know, just not, not allowing the grief to enter the workplace. And it's just the quiet elephant in the room, but which is actually the loud elephant in the room that's in the room. So all, everybody around feels uncomfortable because this person that's returning to work after a significant loss isn't probably on the top of their game. So that, that in itself does the stress. The fact that no one's talking about it creates another, just an uncomfortable stress. Um, what does it look like going forward? There's just pieces that happen within that. Remember, we're emotional people, but we really are. And so when you bring that into a workplace and you start getting emotional, the rumor mill starts, the insecurities start. So addressing, I think what happens when companies don't address the elephant in the room and address this loss and expectations of what will happen with this grieving person returning, or if they've lost an employee, what this work group should expect of losing a coworker. I think what happens is we, we go uh, try to do it in, in, and adjust to it in our own separate ways, and the lines of communication stop working, and the output starts changing, and the blaming starts happening. So, in other words, productivity can go down, but also I guess the worst thing could be you may have uh, this wonderful, fantastic employee who might just leave and not be able to continue to work there, and then you've lost you know, a, a really good um, a good employee, I guess that would be the, the worst thing, one of the worst things that could happen in this kind of a situation. Right. So, for example, you know, just to make it personal, because I think uh, personal stories really really tell something. You know, my husband died 22 years ago, and I was in a Fortune 100, you know, a big company. And although they were great to me on many ways, one of the things was I had three offices, and I traveled every week, but now I had this two-year-old baby, and I just told that I, I couldn't do it every week. I just couldn't do it. Yet I was working for them 10 years prior to this happening, and I was a very good employee for them. And we did get to some agreement. It was, I, this was before TSA and the days of the empty middle seat. Yep. Um, We've got one minute take, left. Okay. I used to take her everywhere with me. I took her every, ended up taking everywhere with me and putting her daycare. But when I couldn't do it anymore and I asked for a job change, they, would, they didn't want to give it to me. Yeah, well, probably. And what, what year was that? Oh, back in the 1992, 93, yeah. 94. Yeah, yeah. So I think some of that has begun to change, obviously, the, the people like you and the work that you're doing, uh, which is obviously very important. And I want to, because we only have a minute left, I hate to cut this short, but I want to mention the book again because... Uh, listeners should, can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, and I want you to also tell us the website that they can go to, Grief in the Workplace, A Comprehensive Guide to Being Prepared, Rachel Codenance. Where can we reach you, Rachel? And also maybe uh, the, I assume that your website would tell us where your speaking engagements are, et cetera. Correct. My website is rachelcodanas.com, which is R-A-C-H-E-L-K-O-D-A-N-A-Z.com. And while that links to my other websites for easier for the listeners, the book is available. It's called griefintheworkplace.com. It's actually, I have a website, griefintheworkplace.com. 
Which Great. They Thank you so on. much for being on the show this morning, uh, Rachel. Lots of good information, as always, and uh, we'll talk to you again. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.